0: Hello, hello, and welcome back to yet another episode of Polar Times, the podcast that brings you science and stories from literally the coolest places on the planet. Hi, everyone. You're back here with me, Jack. Uh, It's lovely to be back again on Polar Times. Always a pleasure. Uh, I love talking about polar places, as you can probably tell. And when that love kind of began um and this podcast kind of began back in the first lockdown that we had in the uk back in 2020 when the idea for this podcast was conceived you know along when everyone started putting out podcasts (laughs) because we were locked in your homes yeah it couldn't have really got off the ground without the assistance of the person who is my guest today my lovely guest um i am not really an editor um although I should learn, uh, I'm just the host. So I really needed somebody with some fabulous editing skills to come along and turn this dream into a reality. So I am forever indebted to to this person. And not only do they have fabulous, fabulous editing skills, they're also a lovely lovely person and they're also doing great and really interesting science so you know what more can you ask for from a um, from an episode i just really wanted to put my heartfelt thanks out there to them and so i thought i'd give them the chance to come on and uh, tell us all about themselves and step out from behind the shadows into the light. <laughs> uh, yeah, she is an Arctic scientist and she works on the uh, the tundra, which is a really uh, super important and interesting ecosystem. She tells us a bit about her fieldwork and a bit about the, the COVID lockdown struggles of fieldwork and stuff like that. And yeah, I had just a lovely time chatting to her because it she's a lovely person. So without further ado, let's get amongst it. Alright everyone please welcome to the stage my lovely guest for this week's episode Elise Scalloy. Hi Elise how's it going?
1: Hi Jack. Yeah I'm doing doing well in the uh, cloudy Edinburgh. But um, oh. yeah, <laughs> I'm My actually studio. in sunny
0: Hull. Would you believe it's really it's like 26 degrees here or something wild. Wow. No way. <laughs> I know. Yeah, I can't believe i have in shorts and t-shirt, and it's it's hot in this <laughs> in this <little laughs> office room. I'm in. So yeah, I believe it. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, how how are you? Um, so so we got a bit off track here um, to let people behind the curtain. Elise is uh, one of the our usual editors of the lovely Polar Times. So uh, yeah, the format. We'll try and keep the same format as (laughs) usual. All right. So, yeah. I know the drill. Yeah, you know the drill. Yeah. As ever, my first question is who are you and how did you come to polar
1: life? I'm a third year now, uh, PhD student at the University of Edinburgh with the lab group Team Shrub. I'm a polar ecologist slash biogeographer slash climate science person. (laughs) I never quite figured out what to call myself. And I am studying uh, the impacts of climate warming on tundra processes from decomposition through to plant growth and Do a lot of science communication stuff, uh, like Jack mentioned, podcast editing. (laughs) And um, yeah, Um, how I came into polar life uh, is is tricky to figure out where exactly. But I grew up in Cambridgeshire and uh, my parents were bringing me into the University Science Festival every year. And the Antarctic Survey were always there with like these cool big balloons and like massive bits of kit and tents all set up. And I thought, oh, that's a cool but unachievable dream. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And well, I'm not an Antarctic scientist now. I work in the Arctic, but. I kept that interest, I guess, and I've always been interested in climate change. There's lots of floods where I grew up, so that's always kind of on my mind. I remember specifically one time I live maybe like an hour and a half drive from the sea, but a seal managed to swim through floodwaters from the sea (laughs) to near my house once, and that kind of stuck with me. (laughs) Um, So I've always been a bit bothered about climate change, and uh, yeah, I went to study geography at university and that kind of led into biogeography and climate stuff and then I sort of fell into tundra ecology um, especially when I realized that uh, I don't like hot weather and being an arctic scientist is a really great way to avoid summer so I can head somewhere that's you know between minus five and five degrees and that's perfect zone for me.
0: so being up in Edinburgh right now is lovely
1: (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's great it's uh, nearly time to put the heating on
0: that's why you pick Scotland I see yeah (laughs) (laughs) okay lovely so just for a bit of background I suppose for our listeners you mentioned uh you're a specialist on the tundra so Mm -hmm. what 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 is the tundra where can we find it what does it look like
1: So the tundra is uh, a type of ecosystem um, that is characterized by being a treeless plain, which is also the definition of savanna in some circles, but this is the cold version. Um, So it's uh, an ecosystem that's found in alpine areas or in polar areas uh, where trees can't survive there's there's permafrost so frozen ground trees can't grow roots and it's dark for half the year and for most of the time the plants are covered in snow so typically you only got like a handful of months in the middle of summer where uh the plants go through their whole you know spring through to autumn succession um it's a very rapid growing season and for most of the year it's just cold and snowy and dark um so the the plants that grow up there are very resilient and very sensitive to climate warming and they support all manner of different interesting um, animal life and they're very important for the communities that kind of surround them. So yeah the tundra is somewhere where I think if a shrub gets above your knees <laughs> it'll be a surprise.
0: Wow okay it's yeah. amazing that any plants grow there at all. Are they considered yeah. like extremists or I suppose by definition they are?
1: Yeah, there's lots of different strategies that the plant's up there Use some of them are very they're they're often very small but um, a lot of them are very dense and insulate the ground and they keep the soil warm for themselves. Some of them are quite fuzzy um, and a lot of them just go kind of ham every every summer and spread a bunch of seeds. I know it's strange to think about plants in the Arctic, especially I was at a hairdresser's once recently and the hairdresser was asking me what I was studying. I said, "Oh, plants in the Arctic," and she said, "Oh, but there aren't any plants in the Arctic."
0: Right, exactly. Yeah. I was yeah.
1: like, "Oh yeah, okay, no, oops, <laughs> more for me." But uh, yeah, it's a very special ecosystem. Yeah, and very sensitive to changes in um, temperature conditions on the ground and permafrost and hydrological changes. So it's interesting to study through the lens of of, of the climate changing.
0: Sure. So the t- um, so the tundra is kind of above the latitudes where you get any trees at all. So. How much land is up there? How much area does it kind of cover? Like roughly, I don't want the square footage, but (laughs) like roughly, it's like a massive area, right?
1: Yeah, massive areas. I mean, just speaking for the Arctic alone, because we've got alpine tundras all around the world. But yeah, you've got the boreal forest or the tiger and then the tree line sort of peters out. I can't remember the latitude, (laughs) but, uh, you know, there's this tree line that's pretty consistent through uh, Canada and Scandinavia, Siberia, US Arctic areas, um, and then it grades pretty quickly into this permafrost-rich tundra environment. And it goes up pretty pretty far north. I mean, if you look um, at the map and you can see Greenland or Ellesmere Island or Svalbard, for example, really northerly islands, um, you're likely to find some plant life even at the tips of those areas.
0: Do you have a favorite uh, tundra plant whilst we're on?
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, my master's research, um, I was looking at a plant called Cassiope tetragona. And if there's other tundra people listening in, there's a million ways to pronounce that. So they're probably oh, like, really? why is it? Why are you not calling it Cassiope tetragona? Well, whatever. Cassiope tetragona, Arctic uh, white bell heather. It's similar to the heathers that we would get in the UK where, where I am now, but it's the Arctic version. <laughs> mm-hmm. And um, my master's research was uh, studying dendroclimatology, which is, it's too many syllables in one word, so I'll explain <laughs> it. Um, it's when you typically look at the tree rings uh, of a tree and kind of correlate the widths of the rings to different temperature conditions. So in warmer years, the rings might be a bit wider um, and you can reconstruct past, past climates that way. So with the heather, you can do the same. And it's one of the few plants in the Arctic where you can really go quite a long ways back, up to 150 years at least. Not by cutting through the plant, but by looking at how the the leaf nodes kind of differ each year there's like a wave pattern in the leaves so you can get these really long like meter long strands of this plant and look under a microscope and you know pretty accurately reconstruct summer temperatures and it's a pretty useful tool if you'd asked me this three years ago I would have said this is my least favorite plant because I'd seen it too much but (laughs) it's weaseled its way back into my heart
0: that's that's incredible that you can I suppose it makes total sense when the plants are that long-lived that you'd be able to use them to you know See so you have what the last hundred years were like or whatever. So how long does Heather, does this, how old can it grow?
1: Um, I'm not sure exactly, but I think the longest reconstruction made has been about 150 years. But the cool thing about some of these plants uh, is that um, if, if you've got ancient versions of these plants that have been melted out from under glaciers or from under permafrost, and they're pretty well preserved, you can get a whole shrub that's... Um, kind of been held in shape with its leaves still attached from, I don't know, thousands of years ago when the glacier first rolled over the tundra in the first place. So there's there's potential there and I think people are thinking about looking into this, taking these very ancient plants and trying to use the same tools to reconstruct uh, climate for back when the glacier was at a certain point. So yeah, there's lots of ancient climate reconstruction potential with these plants.
0: Okay. And is it only, like, what kind of information can it give you? Is it only, like, temperature? uh, And, like, how much they grew in a year? Or can you tell anything else?
1: You can tell some kind of interesting site-specific stuff. Um, When I was looking at my own samples and my masters, you could pick out a year where there was heavy flooding and that sort of ruined the growth that year. So we knew... The year that flood had happened, maybe like 2007, and there was a consistent sort of notch in all of the samples. And I think with these sort of things, there's just a lot of uh, going through climate records and statistics and seeing what correlates. So we found that often spring and summer temperatures correlate pretty well but um, you can always use old precipitation records or snow cover records. Um, I think that's a really interesting avenue of study because if, if you've got these plants and they're well preserved um, and you can get these correlations sort of pinned down, yeah, you can hopefully be able to reconstruct all sorts of different weather conditions. That's super
0: interesting. And mm-hmm. so is it only certain plants that tell you things or can you use like lots of different species to find out different information?
1: Yeah, there's quite a few plants that you can use in the Arctic with similar methods. Uh, Not all of them are suitable. Not all of them have these sort of annual records. I think to be a good plant to use for this sort of research worldwide, it has to be uh, common. So widespread, have a consistent climate record and you can, I think you have to be able to look at particular annual markers. So either rings or these leaf markers. Um, But yeah, I can think of a handful of quite common tundra plants uh willow some of the drier species and what's cool about a lot of them is they're just widespread across the arctic tundra and also in alpine areas too so yeah you can pretty reliably use the same tool in different locations
0: that's yeah that's very very handy okay lovely um so why don't you tell us a little bit more about kind of your current research you said that's your master's Research. Hmm. So, what are you working on now? Is it more to do with kind of permafrost stuff and like the below ground phenology? I read that from your <laughs> website. I'm trying to sound like I know what it means. But sure. Tell us about your current research.
1: <laughs> I mean, that's uh, you're on the right lines. Okay. So in, in my master's, uh, it's kind of a continuation, really. I met my current supervisor doing field work for my master's degree in Ellesmere Island, and it's all part of the same sort of interconnected. Network of of researchers, um, so I was curious about how the plant growth and climate relations were quite sensitive to even microclimate conditions in the same sites. So you know, a plant uh, maybe a few meters away from the other. They would show like the generally the same climate record, but with some interesting differences due to like localised flooding or localised uh, temperature conditions. So I wanted to ask some questions about microclimate versus macroclimate. So microclimate, I guess I can define as within the few metre radius around any individual plant. Like your so, bedroom
0: rather than your house.
1: Yeah, <laughs> mm-hmm, exactly. Yeah. Uh, so we, we know roughly that uh, climate warming is causing um Greening in the Arctic, so a uh, lot of uh, these tundra plant species are doing really well under warmer conditions. and a lot of them, for example Arctic willow and and birch species, they're just expanding and encroaching further north. And if you look at satellite records, of the same sites over time, you're seeing what could only be described as greening, which sounds like good news. I was
0: going to say, that sounds like good news,
1: yeah. (laughs) Um, I guess, yeah, one of those things where what happens in the Arctic doesn't stay in the Arctic. So if these plants are causing the ground to warm up more, that's potentially a problem with permafrost and even more plant growth and in particular uh you've got the albedo effect so usually if you've got an area that is kind of lighter grounds snow during winter and sort of more light barren grounds during uh the summer that will reflect the heat from the sun back up and it won't retain the heat but if you've got darker patches of ground because of all these shrubs it's a process we call shrubification <laughs> which sounds really shrubification
0: doofy, <laughs> Oh, I love it. Um,
1: a word I have to type out at least five times a day. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it has uh, climate implications and ecosystem implications. And so we know that roughly that's happening with climate change, but we don't have much of an idea about local conditions and how microclimate might determine things more or less for different plants. So I'm doing a pretty multifaceted study that I hope to finish looking at microclimate impacts on above and below ground ecosystem processes. So decomposition uh, using tea bags as a proxy for litter decomposition. Okay. Um, looking at root growth and um, comparing that to above ground leaf and flower growth and reproduction, something we call phenology, the timing of different life events in a plant and growth as well. So yeah, my, my general day to day is I take these drone images that are quite high resolution and I use the elevation from these drone images to model microclimate, compare that to these different ecology processes and then compare that to what's happening in the macro climate, if that makes sense. I think I used a sentence there with too many big words.
0: No, that makes that makes total sense. Yeah. So we, let's break it down a little bit, I suppose. So mm-hmm. this, this kind of shrubification that you were talking about before, yeah, and how so the spread of these dark plants, that is increasing the warming of the Arctic because it's retaining the heat. And then, which is good for the plants, so more of them grow. Mm So it's like a kind of (laughs) self-exciting system, I suppose. Okay, so that's bad news. Is it bad news all around for the the plants themselves?
1: (laughs) I guess it depends, really. Um, I mean, some plants that aren't able to keep up with this growth, they're more slow growing, for example, are being outcompeted. If you've got these big willows that are taking over the whole area and they're shadowing over you, you don't get any access to light. So that's one question. So will this process cause a change in biodiversity for the better or the worse in the Arctic? Not sure. Oh,
0: watch, and this
1: <laughs> watch this space. Watch this <laughs> space. But yeah, there's there's all sorts of there's people looking into, you know, how this is affecting permafrost and, all sorts of different things so it's uh it's a big very rapidly happening issue uh with lots of different facets so
0: yeah okay yeah. and you put your finger on something i was going to ask about um next which is the permafrost which is like must be one of the most crucial aspects of tundra anything and <laughs> <laughs> um, people do their whole studies on you know just permafrost and stuff like that so mm-hmm. like how how much does that I suppose that's why, is that why it's so important to study the below ground phenology as well as the above ground? I suppose when you look at plants, you need to look at their roots as well as
1: their leaves. Mm -hmm. A lot of the biomass in the tundra is actually below ground in these big root networks. And um, that's obviously driven by permafrost processes and um, access to soil moisture, that sort of thing. But we don't know much about how the below ground... Plant life uh, survives year round, um, so there's questions there. You know, is the root growth aligned with the above ground growth? We're not sure. Is uh, warming climate and warming soils causing the root growth to continue for longer into the winter? And that's really hard to uh, to pick apart. Because you can't just put cameras in the ground in the arctic because the permafrost just shoves them back up Uh, it's difficult to do research when it's snowy especially below ground stuff you just either you wouldn't want to or it's just challenging or expensive um so uh, a lot of the work i'm trying to do at the moment is seeing so it's a microclimate changing these things that we can visibly observe with our naked eyes above ground at the same rate as below ground, we're not sure. <laughs> um, so yeah we're trying to uh, install some novel methods uh, that don't involve sticking cameras into the ground to observe these processes.
0: Okay and what do these methods involve?
1: So my current experiment is based on putting soil cores in the ground um, at the end of the growing season, which is August usually, because <laughs> a lot of these sites get snowy and freeze up again in September, October, and then leaving them in the ground for a year. And then we'd set maybe three soil cores in one area and pull one out in s- spring, so May, one out in July, and one out at the end of August, and uh, see how the rooting depth changes. Through the growing season and compare that to soil temperature conditions, that kind of thing. Um, In areas without permafrost, it's really easy just to stick a camera into the ground and you can just watch the roots grow in real time. But with permafrost, you've got to be a bit more basic, I think, with your methods. So yeah, sticking these cores in at different lengths, yanking them out, and hopefully we'll see, watch this space, being able to track uh, biomass change the season
0: you say that the permafrost pushes the cameras out of the ground is it just does the does it is it like ice that grows and shrinks with the season or something and pushes how does that work
1: that's a good question there's um what we call an active layer depth so this is the depth maybe at 30 centimeters say where the soil goes from being kind of loose unfrozen soil to just kind of icy so all the gaps in the soil will be filled with frozen water nothing can grow and the active layer will sort of shift in height uh, throughout the season so um in spring we'd expect it to be quite close to the surface so we're pulling out shorter cores versus in august it might be the deepest it can get so maybe up to 50 centimeters we can pull out the longer ones we'll see <laughs> if uh if it pushes the cores out the ground but if you stick cameras in it just pops them back out. up yeah
0: yeah like that quickly just straight out (laughs) (laughs) fires it out of the ground
1: (laughs) well I mean maybe even like a lot of uh, geomorphological processes like ground-based stuff can happen really quickly I don't know much about it but you know permafrost lakes can form and cracks and little landslides so yeah it's really unpredictable ground
0: okay and do you have any preliminary results from your studies so if not like what do you expect
1: to find? In general, I'm expecting to find higher productivity in warmer and moister areas. Mm. Um, we'll see. <laughs> we'll see if that, I've got lots of different sites in the Arctic that I'm kind of looking at. Um, I'd be curious to see if microclimate has the same control of these processes um, everywhere you go, or if, you know, the communities of plants to sort of act homogeneously like as one. Um, the project that I'm sort of wrapping up at the moment is my decomposition study where I use tea bags <laughs> mm. in, um, in place of um, real litter to, to look at uh, different decomposition rates around, around the tundra because it's really hard to make accurate predictions of um, carbon release from permafrost from decomposition processes um, when you're just taking you know, a couple of measurements at each site. So we've got loads of different measurements from quite a small area in the Yukon, um, place called Kikatara, Kershal Island. Um, So we've got microclimate model and various soil temperature and soil moisture readings along with these decomposition uh, metrics. And yeah, that was just to try and see if how much decomposition varied across a small area Um, and kind of what controlled it, is it more temperature? Is it more soil moisture? Is it more permafrost? And it seems to be um, that, you know, on a a large scale you can use temperature to kind of guess areas with higher decomposition, but on a more local scale it's actually soil moisture. So uh, below ground conditions, the sort of conditions that we can't easily measure using drones and satellites and there's quite a range of decomposition rates in one small site. So basically I'm saying <laughs> it's really hard to make these models of how much carbon's being released in these areas um, because the tundra is not homogenous at all. It's varied in elevation and soil conditions and microclimates. so yeah, it's a tricky one.
0: Sure, yeah. Uh, what kind of tea bags are you using? <laughs> <laughs>
1: So this is all Very part of, <laughs> uh, there's a protocol called the, the teabag index, which, um, oh, really? yeah, it's uh, not just for Arctic sites, it's for anywhere around the world. And it's using, I think, Lipton green tea and re- rooibos tea. Um, and you plant them, you can do it. If you have these teas at home, listeners, <laughs> take them out to the garden home. now. <laughs> uh, you you uh, measure the weight of them and bury them side by side. And it works in quite a cool way. The green tea decomposes a lot lot faster naturally just because of the sort of leaf it is than the red tea. And you can kind of compare the the mass loss of both. So if you weigh them before and after you've buried them after say a few months um, and then work out the decomposition rate from those. Um, It's a good protocol because these tea bags can be bought anywhere around the world. And it's pretty fun. If you want to do citizen science and get kids involved, you can just give them a bunch of tea bags and get them burying them. And it's also quite useful because you can then, you're using quite standardized materials uh, for different biomes. So it's, it's a pretty useful tool. Yeah, a student in my lab prior to my arrival here in Edinburgh, uh, Hayden Thomas, did quite a lot of teabag index stuff uh, in both the tundra and in Australia. And there's loads of things you can look at there. But it's it's just fun to say I'm out burying teabags.
0: Yeah, I did not expect yeah. such a comprehensive <laughs> answer, but I should have realized, of course, everything in science is thought about. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, fabulous. And and I suppose my final question about this um, the microclimate stuff. Yeah, you're saying that the tundra is really varied in terms of how you know what it, what it looks like in the microclimate. So, are you looking at sites which have like lots of different microclimates that are like it's really rocky or changes elevation all the time, and then some sites that are just flat and you know there'll be no difference anywhere for agents around? Does anywhere like that exist on the tundra? <coughs>
1: That's a really good question. I'm looking at a range. So the the site I mentioned before, Kikataruk, uh Herschel Island in Canada, um, the area we're looking at has a pretty low elevational gradient. It's, it's, you know, not much variation there, although there is variation in climate and below ground conditions. But we're also interested in um, areas with a high elevational gradient so because of covid my field work this year has been messed about with um so i've been working in the, <laughs> in the cairngorms in scotland which is the closest the uk has to a tundra environment so we're going on like a slope of about a 500 meter gradient um above the tree line and um doing these experiments there too uh we've got um a really good network in tundra ecology. Um, for example, the International Tundra Experiment, ITEX, um, people often go up every year and do the same measurements and follow standard protocols, so that's really nice, everyone's on board. So I've got people from that um, network putting experiments up for me in SACE, Valbard, uh, parts of Lapland, um, the Rockies, Alaska. Um, some quite boggy areas in Alaska, which might be interesting. We've got someone setting stuff up for us in Alpine, Japan. Wow. Um, yeah. And feasibly, you can also look at these things in the Antarctic, too. Different set of plants. But there's vegetated areas, which are also tundra systems. So I don't have anyone doing my PhD experiments in the Antarctic. That's, but that would be the dream.
0: Do you, is there any tundra in the Antarctic? I'm not sure that's an
1: environment that's done. there is it it's there, there are some vegetated areas <laughs> but not as much uh, on
0: the actual continent is there on more
1: islands nearby yeah. so like yeah, sub-antarctic
0: i guess yeah
1: sub-antarctic yeah so it's it's not quite the same but it's um plants under similar conditions so sure. uh, darkness and coldness and exposedness um and under invasion pressure too, from insects, scientists and uh, tourists bringing them in. So yeah, interesting things to look at, but a slightly different system.
0: Sure. I was going to ask you about itex, but then you've kind of told us already who they are, Um, and also more about what the work of Team Shrub are doing Mm -hmm. in your lab. So what kind of stuff are they looking at in general?
1: Uh, so I guess I'll start with ITEC. So that's the International Tundra Experiment. I worked with them more explicitly in my master's, but I'm working with them as a network now. Um, so this is uh, a long-term multi-site experiment throughout the Arctic and at Alpine areas. Uh, as I mentioned, people are doing the same protocols and making the same observations. Um, but the cool thing is that they're, a lot of the sites are doing warming experiments. So they're using something called Open Top Chambers, Uh, which are sort of open top greenhouses to heat up patches of tundra by two or three degrees and comparing plant and soil and insect, for example, processes sort of in and out of those experiments. They're the same design and they're used throughout the Arctic and Alpine areas. So that's pretty cool. Some of them have been going on for like 30 plus years. So it's a good proxy for long term climate warming that that's it's just a useful network because everyone's sort of friendly that and on board great. It's that sounds really, really good. good
0: yeah I mean you can't understate the value of like a long-term study in anything so something, mm. like, that. something like that exists it's fabulous yeah.
1: they're well maintained and people meet up quite a lot and my current lab team shrub in Edinburgh is part of that group we don't have warming experiments but we do have sort of standard protocols that we look at in our own sites each year. But I like Team Shrub because we do a lot of drone work and satellite work. So we're looking at lots of different scales. We've got people in the lab doing sort of global biodiversity work, but yeah, we're part of a a drone network, high latitude drone ecology network so this is all these different sites collecting drone imagery super useful comparing that to the sort of satellite products that we get from nasa and whatever loads of different services and yeah sort of tracking tundra change at different scales
0: that sounds that sounds really interesting okay i have two final tundra related questions (laughs) before we move on firstly being someone who studies and works in the arctic is any of your research or kind of logistics or anything do you rely on any indigenous knowledge or local knowledge and stuff like that to help inform
1: anything yeah that's that's a good question so um it depends on what site you're working at some areas just aren't populated at all um my master's site on Ellesmere Island Alexandra Fjord is completely remote it has a, a quite a dark history actually it's uh one of the a few settlements that were designed by the Canadian government back in, I think, the 50s, to reloc- forcibly relocate Inuit communities to politically claim some of those Arctic islands as Canadian, mm. in the face of various pressures with the Cold War and oil resources. So, yeah, whole families were taken up, split apart, and put in these different communities. Um, Alexandra Fjord, the buildings that are there, were there. As There's a police building, a, a building where some families uh, lived. They didn't stay there long. It's just not it's not a good place for anyone to live. It's, people can't um, herd caribou up there as they would back home. It's just not, it's too dark, too cold, too far north. And it's just an evil thing to do, relocating people. So um, that particular site, that's its legacy, but it's, as of now, only used for scientists. But that's always something that's sort of in the back of my mind when we're using that data is to know why we have the privilege to use those buildings anyways, because, you know, of a really dark history, it's easy to forget those sort of things. If you're not educating yourself and not speaking to community members, I quite like going to the Arctic net conference um, every year. That's a, a big Arctic research and community conference held in different parts of Canada. And there's a big, a big proportion of the delegation is northern community members, and I love going to those talks and panels. Uh, people talking about um, their experiences as Indigenous Canadians living in the Arctic. How, uh, as a as a white settler scientist, you can um, you should engage with people in a non-exploitative way. So I think it's got. If you're doing research in somewhere as populated as the Arctic, uh, which I think. And speaking to friends and family in the UK, people don't think it's populated at all, but it is. <laughs> you need to be active and you know chat to people and make sure that you're causing no harm. And if you are working with indigenous communities, um, that you're uh, appropriately crediting people, asking for the permissions, um, and generally not exploiting anyone. Um, and ideally, working with communities for for something good in the long run. Um, so I've not actually been able to get up to Kikitarra at Kerschel Island yet, <laughs> hopefully next year. But one of the reasons that we didn't go up uh, in the last two years is because there's a duty as scientists from the South, not to bring up any diseases. <laughs> yeah, sure. um, so uh, yeah, that's that's been a priority for our research group is to be as safe as possible. And in this case, that means not going. Okay,
0: interesting. Yeah, yeah, I mean you're totally right. I and mean, it's um, I guess I was gonna to talk to you about this a bit later. because you're I know you're big into science communication and stuff like that. So but it's just part of I feel like a more modern scientist. I feel since I started my PhD rather than when I was an undergraduate or master student, science communication and public engagement and community engagement and all that kind of stuff has become so much more important and um, i'm really glad that now it's kind of seen as the norm to be able to, that that's part of the duty or the role or the job description of being mm-hmm. to be able to pass it all on and, like you say work with the communities where you're doing field work and stuff like that so yeah good 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 messages so to... all right yeah and my final question climate change dun, 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 da, what da, is da. what is the future of the tundra looking like what will it physically look like? How will it be changing? I suppose you kind of answered it a little bit already. Just more, are we going to see more greening? or is it, uh, yeah, What's the end game?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. So I, I think we expect to see, at least in the short term, more greening, especially this pl- these plants that are happy to encroach north and uh, benefiting from deeper soils and warmer soils. But I think the issue with well not the issue but the interesting thing about the arctic is that light controls everything so is there a limit to how much these plants can continue growing at these at these at these rates because you know the climate can change but you know it's always going to be dark through the whole of winter
0: sure
1: (laughs) so it won't be a complete overnight change it's there's questions about snow melt. The snow might be melting earlier, but is it still constrained by, constrained by light? The snow might be settling later, but then again, is is light still the main um, limiting factor? So yeah, that's, a, that's interesting questions that um, are being looked into, but I'm not sure. But I think generally we'll have thawing permafrosts releasing yeah, quite potent greenhouse gases, methane and stuff into the atmosphere. That's obviously going to cause more global climate change and then there's you know very rapidly changing coastlines too like certain communities are sort of built along these permafrost cliffs and they're crumbling into the sea and people are having to be evacuated so um the sort of social changes in in the tundra um are certainly connected to climate change um, goes without saying as well. Yeah, I mean, there's there's this forest fires and boreal uh, areas and in, in the tiger, for example, Siberia has been getting horrible Arctic forest fires. Um, that's also a risk with the tundra as well. If you have drier conditions, then maybe we'll be seeing more of that. Not sure. I expect it'll be sort of heterogeneous across the Arctic, but okay. yeah. I think it's it's hard to engage when you we, you mentioned science communication when you're talking about your research to people who care about climate change locally it it does if what happens in the arctic doesn't stay in the arctic it will affect everyone else so yeah yeah so it's, it's a challenge because people people don't first of all you've got to explain what the tundra is and by the time you've gotten to that stage people might be falling asleep <laughs> but it's uh yeah it is quite quite pressing and. Um, Thankfully, there's lots of people researching it, but yeah.
0: So the same as everywhere, <laughs> it's being <laughs> yeah. challenged, challenged like everything else. That's exactly. really interesting. I would have thought that just in, I guess, without me, I would have thought that temperature would have been, you know, people think climate change, temperature. It's interesting though. you say that light is more a factor. It's probably for True. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, now for, like... Fires in the Tundra. That's not something that I would have thought would impact it. But then, of course, again, why wouldn't it? I and mean, I think we'll see. That might resonate. I hope that, that resonates with more people now, seeing as wildfires are becoming a bit more I mean, common. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> horribly, horribly. But, um, yeah. yeah. Sure.
1: We talk about Arctic greening, but there's also Arctic browning, which is occurring in certain areas too. And that could be caused by fires or drought, Uh, droughts an issue in certain areas. So it's, it's not like the whole of the tundra is just bursting with this extra productivity. There's, there's um, other climate related impacts.
0: Sure. How much precipitation do they get? Does the tundra get in summer? Does it rain? uh
1: Uh, it can rain
0: (laughs) yeah i'm sure it can (laughs) a little bit
1: Uh, i think it depends on where you are i mean some some soils are just sort of naturally wet because of all the permafrost and Mm. and snow but um no it's it's weird to get caught out in the rain in the arctic (laughs) (laughs) when i was out on field work um i rain like a sort of like summer a summery rainstorm on one day and then the next day we were up hiking in one of the nearby mountains and it was snowy and that was weird because it was snowing in August.
0: <laughs> hey, okay you've mentioned your field work a couple times so can you tell us a bit more about your field work experience so, so you went to Ellsworth Island for your master's it. So, yeah, which switches northern
1: Canada. Mm-hmm. Uh, really, really far north. <laughs> you got to take really, so many really different... far, north. yeah, <laughs> loads of different planes to get there. I think we were taking the most expensive, um, inland set of flights that exists in Canada, really. Wow, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so you've got so like, you know
0: tidy planes as well,
1: <laughs> yeah. So, some of them are as well. So, you know, we take a we went from Vancouver out to um Ottawa and then. Ottawa up to uh, Um and then from Iqaluit you get on this um, plane that stops off at lots of different communities because you have to travel by air um, up there it's uh, there aren't any roads and bridges connecting all the islands so sure. you'd fly for about 40 minutes stop off people would get off and Um, get back on. And it was like a sort of postal service too. That was an interesting set of flights because people were just kind of going about their daily business. Someone was on the plane who had been um, to Ottawa uh, to give birth. So she was bringing her baby back home for the first time. And, you know, it was quite an interesting plane, people up for different reasons. And then we stopped at a place called Resolute where the scientist base is also used by the military. It's kind of a weird place to be at the PCSP. Uh, We were stuck there for about a week because it was foggy. (laughs) We just watched watched the World Cup, uh, which I never do. I hate football. (laughs) I got really (laughs) into it. At
0: least there was TV.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Um, And then from that point, you wait for a good day and you get a tiny little propeller plane up to your field site. So a a long haul journey. We were there for... uh, Um, a month and a half i would say um but they often stay for a bit longer at that site um and we were just sort of tending to the various protocols collecting samples um maintaining the open top chambers um fixing the building up because a bear had broken into the building (laughs) oh wow (laughs) a polar bear had broken in but yeah it's 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 weird when you're i mean i i suppose you have this too with antarctic field work you go somewhere and you sort of live there for a long time and it feels like home, but then something happens that sort of catches you off guard. <laughs> like you realize that you're doing something weird, like um having to do polar bear checks every now and then. And mm. our little porter cabin toilet, the door has to stay open all the time. So you're like sat there looking out onto the icebergs in case there's a bear. <laughs> wow. Okay. Um yeah, you're totally
0: it's, right. This is weird. <laughs> when you've been there if you go for a while, if you're lucky enough to go for a while it's incredible how normal life, I guess it feels quite quickly because it's just life everyone's because everyone's getting on with it you know especially mm-hmm. the science tea, <laughs> and then you're and- right yeah something will just like hit you weirdly <laughs> and it'll be like oh god <laughs> where am I?
1: I was making a pizza one night and I was just um putting out some scraps into our little bin outside and there was uh, an arctic fox had broken into our sort of trash area <laughs> Mm-hmm. Like, you know, a meter away from me, just staring at me like a raccoon. Yeah. <laughs> I was yeah. like, oh, cool. Um, and then that fox hung around at a camp for a bit. There were Arctic hares. Yeah, it was uh, it was pretty special. And and just, you know, you, you end up living a weird domestic life in somewhere you did never expect to live a sure. domestic life, I guess. So we had um instead of a fridge, we had a permafrost locker. So we had all yeah. of our food. Just in a little hatch underground, and we would uh, go shopping <laughs> by walking from uh, the main building with the kitchen down to this hatch, pulling out food and bringing it back up. Uh-huh. Um, played games and just yeah, it was it was and the weather was nice for <laughs> for the Arctic. Uh,
0: always makes a difference. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what, what kind of struck you most when you were finally like there on the tundra? Is this is the place you've been researching for ages.
1: What struck me most was I I knew academically that the tundra growing season was very constrained, but watching that happen in real time over the course of, you know, a handful of weeks was really bizarre. So we got there and, you know, there were buds on all the plants and it was springtime. And then a few weeks later, all all the flowers were blooming. A few weeks after that, everything had turned brown. It was fully autumn. That was weird. Um, And there are certain jobs that you've got to do very quickly. So there's a a few days period where you're meant to be doing a flower count of all the different flowers in the areas. You've just got to like run around all these different locations (laughs) Um, because, yeah, things change really quickly. And one of the things I'm using for my current PhD is uh, call it a phenocam. So we're looking at um, changes in the growing season over time. In different locations by putting up these little cameras and it takes a picture every, maybe every hour and you can kind of track things that way so even just during lockdown last this this winter i was on my laptop just sort of pressing next and all these pictures and yeah things change really quickly it's just it's it's just bizarre what struck me most was when we went back to vancouver um, all the trees. <laughs> it was dark, and there had been forest fires, so it was all this thick smoke. And you feel like an insect walking between all the trees when you've been somewhere without them for so long. It's it's really bizarre. Yeah, an
0: incredible experience. It's, it's mm-hmm. I, I really hope you get a chance to go back.
1: Yeah, well, I'm I'm hoping to finally make it out to the site in um, in the Yukon, Kigetaruk. I've been using the data from there for for two and a bit years now so <laughs> i'd right. like to It'd be see nice it to go yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah
0: so let's move on to, uh, I wanted to, talk to you about. so for most people sci-com means science communication but for you it means science comedy <laughs> <laughs> So can you tell us a little bit about that and why you're interested in science communication, and then science comedy came from?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, so w- with the comedy, I've been doing comedy for a few years now, doing a bit of stand-up, so this is stand-up and, up comedy. Yeah, and yeah, I've done improv, but that doesn't really work so well with <laughs> Arctic stuff. I don't know. Stand-up comedy and uh, comedy writing, that sort of thing, mm-hmm. that's always been an interest of mine. And then when I got more into science, I noticed that there's lots of sort of performance opportunities sort of like TEDx talk style things and different Mm -hmm. universities will have their own setups and I think as I mentioned before it's it's hard to communicate Arctic science in a way that will engage people because I think people want to hear about the adventure of it all you know like I fought a bear with my bare hands I didn't do that but you know they want to hear that sort of story and that's kind of a it's creating the wrong idea of the place it's not like an icy wilderness and whatever but it's it's hard. to You've got to explain what the tundra is and explain all of this stuff to them and people switch off. And I think I don't know about, about you, but when I talk about my polar research, people are often like, don't tell me anything. I don't want to know anything bad.
0: <laughs> mm.
1: And if you're doing something that's explicitly climate change related, they're like, I'm going to tune out because it's too depressing and plus it's not. Even related to where I live. Like it's not, you know, related to the flooding nearby or the forest fires nearby. This is completely remote and whatever. So I found that a good way to uh, engage people is to talk about your sort of day to day life as a polar scientist or a climate scientist. And um, in a way, having a sort of more lighthearted tone or using some comedy elements um, helps get people on board audiences who might typically tune out science. So, if that's like an unsuspecting person at a gig, like an open mic, or someone who's interested in science but doesn't know much about climate change, um, if you approach it in a fairly lighthearted way, it, it's a tricky one because you don't want to joke about climate change because that's causing awful things all around the world and disproportionately affecting a particular communities. So, you don't want to joke about anything like that. But uh, yeah, there's definitely a way that I've found to be fairly successful. Um, just talking about you as an individual and how you relate to this world that teaches people stuff and it gets people interested. And if they have a personal connection then with someone who does this work, they might be more inclined to become more active in either learning more or doing climate activism, that sort of thing. So it's generally what I go for. <laughs>
0: okay. I have to say, I think using comedy and stand up to do like psychopath it's absolutely genius and i would love to see (laughs) i would love to see more of it because you're totally right it's just just approaching it more lightheartedly, or even i mean you say there are topics you don't want to joke about i mean a lot of people have like a dark sense of humor (laughs) and so there must be some forum you know where (laughs) if you like satirize the government responsible or something (laughs) then yeah, yeah and like you say it's that if people aren't expecting it you can and then I guess yeah, like I can just picture being at an open mic and someone came up, and, oh, scientist and uh, I've done this in the Arctic. You'd be listening already, and you'd
1: be, mm-hmm.
0: yeah, whatever they said after. So.
1: And there's there's certain angles you can take as well that I found to be quite um, engaging. I've got a bit about talking about, I start off generally talking about these disaster movies like Day After Tomorrow, that sort of thing, and talking about how people in my department might be studying like natural disasters, that sort of thing. And then I'm like, but I'm taking more of the long game by studying Arctic climate change and then kind of making my research sound like a disaster movie in various ways and pulling in all these tropes. So that's, uh, or I talk about how, like I self-sabotage myself on dates by talking about climate change and put people off. So more of a sort of personable approach. I can set. Up, I can send you some links <laughs> to my YouTube. Please videos. do. Yeah, I didn't want to. Say, <laughs> I didn't want
0: to put you on the spot and say, "Do like that. I you know stand up?" Like it requires an audience. Idea. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, yeah. 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 I'm sure we could put it with the podcast. We would love to see that. I actually watched one of them, and I was going to ask you about your Christmas cards
1: the christmas cards How that business is
0: going <laughs> that side hustle
1: <laughs> that was a, i made that joke on stage and i <laughs> regret it every day i didn't mean to say that was the <laughs> so for context <laughs> um often universities or different institutes will put on something called a science slam if you ever see that advertised go to it you don't have to perform you can just watch people and it's a way of um doing stage performances it could be comedy dance music, whatever, um, to communicate your research. So the ones I've been to, people have done like prop stuff. There's been like uh, really um, creative drag acts and comedy stuff. Go through it. They're they're great. So I was taking part in the Science Slam at the British Ecological Society's meeting in Belfast before the world stopped. (laughs) It was one of my like last big gigs. Um, And I don't know what I think. I was just doing my usual sort of like climate change routine and I had a, a song about how Christmas cards don't represent the tundra ecosystem accurately, which they don't, by the way. <laughs> yeah. It's
0: yeah.
1: like, it's like, you know, pictures of the North Pole with trees. First of all, the North Pole's in the sea.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: It's, um and there's no trees that far north. So that sort of thing. So I've gone through various different Christmas cards. I'm singing a song. And then I, as a joke, designed these cards um, with like tundra s- species on them. I think. I can't remember what I did. There was like a ptarmigan and a narwhal and they were sort of like Christmas themed. And I said on stage, next time we have a meeting, I'll be selling these. And people were like, yeah. yeah. And I was like, <laughs> oops. <laughs> so no, and I've had people DM me on Twitter saying, um, are you making the cards? I can hook you up with someone who does graphic design. I'm like, mm, I'm not doing that. Not <laughs> too much, too much time to be spending on other things.
0: Um, <laughs> Maybe one day. Maybe, yeah. someone wa- maybe someone will watch your uh, and
1: take the idea and run with it. So that's that's a warning against doing an off-handed joke <laughs> <laughs> on stage but there's uh, throughout throughout the, the world different events like this or uh, workshops um, to encourage people to build their research or their work into some sort of like comedy routine. I went to a conference once, I think it was one of the Arctic Net ones, and there was like a an improv comedy workshop for scientists, just to get them more comfortable speaking up on a podium. But I think it's uh, if you want to do science communication, it's easier than it, than you'd think to make a comedy routine. There'll be things that you find funny from either field work or lab work or engaging with people out day to day in your lab. Um, just funny stories, the sort of nerdy jokes that you tell each other as researchers if you explain the sort of groundwork to those jokes other people find them funny too and generally if you just go on stage and say things in like a funny tone of voice someone will laugh
0: <laughs> yeah
1: yeah that's fantastic
0: i'm gonna keep eye out for more science science comedy
1: if you're in the uk in particular most universities will have uh something called bright club i can send the link for that and they have comedy workshops where you turn your research into a routine, and then they'll um, book you in for ten minutes at a comedy club, so you can go to like your city's local stand-up club, and it's a really supportive audience. And I think a lot of people come out of it not necessarily wanting to do stand-up as a hobby, but a lot more confident in their own research. And as an audience member, you learn so much because people are only doing this if they're passionate, right? So
0: sure, yeah, that sounds great. I mean, I've been into like the, the the Fame Lab short talk competitions you know, mm, talk and yeah. stuff like that. And you're right, com- yeah, such a natural fit. I'm going to look it up and give it a go. You should all do it as well, listeners, dear listeners.
1: <laughs> yeah, you'd be great, Jack.
0: <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> all right, that brings us to, sadly, to the final part of the episode. We call it The Polar Plug, which is where I give you our lovely guest a couple of minutes to talk about a topic. Uh, anything you want to talk about, any of the research you've seen or People or some people think people, whatever you like. So go on. Look something polar related.
1: Okay. So uh this is not explicitly polar related, but a lot of the work. Oh, no, sorry. Cancel.
0: That's the end of the episode. Thank you again
1: for listening to Polar <laughs> Times.
0: <laughs> no, go on. Sorry. Um
1: mm-hmm. uh, we do use a lot of polar data for it, but I think this is something I plug whenever I can for researchers, particularly ecology researchers, um, because we use programs that ecologists use, uh, called Coding Club. Uh, That's our our coding club. And that was developed by um, people in my lab, Team Shrub, in particular, Isla Meyer-Smith and Gagana Daskalova. It's like a peer-led coding workshop website in group. So we do Zoom workshops weekly for free and also in person here in Edinburgh. And I'm plugging it because it's really made my research come on leaps and bounds and it's run by students and um, contributed to by loads of undergrads too. We, we, we teach undergrads coding in a course, and then they go on to make these beautiful workshops and they're available online and people from all different ages and demographics are learning from them. And it's great to know that they're being produced by, um, keen undergrads. So yeah, I think with a lot of the work that I do with these networks like Hilden or ITEX, there's a lot of data sharing, a lot of data cleaning. People are formatting their data in different ways, but a lot of data sharing. And I'm sure that's the same with other types of polar research. And if I didn't have these resources, I would be struggling so hard. But um, using the sort of coding and programming tools and learning about version control, I've been able to handle people's data in. an ethical way, um, share data more easily, and it's just made my life so much easier. And most of all, it's been really nice to help coach these undergrads to um, to coach other people. Um, and as I said before, like a lot of the workshops use polar data, data from these tundra field sites. So if you have a vested interest in that, then. I'd recommend digging in and they're constantly evolving. And if you have anything that you'd like us to do a workshop on or change, we're open to uh, communication. So yeah, I'd check it out and I'll, I'll send you the link Jack, so you can post that. But that's my polar plug coding club. Perfect.
0: Thank you so much. That was absolutely perfect. Yeah. I actually even made a note of it because that sounds really useful. (laughs) (laughs) Not that I'm struggling with R. (laughs)
1: it's it's a lot of Uh, (laughs) it is there's some uh python stuff in there too fabulous
0: okay awesome all right sadly that brings us to the end of another episode of polar times thank you so much everyone for tuning in and listening once again thank you everyone has subscribed and rated so far if you haven't then you know what to do uh you can get in contact with us uh you can either email us our gmail is these are polar times at gmail.com. Once again, that email is these are polar times at gmail.com. Or you can tweet Apex, which is at polar underscore research. So all that's left is for me to thank my guest for today. Elise Galloway, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been an absolute oh, pleasure.
1: Thank you for having me. It was really fun. And nice to be on this end of it too, after editing so many episodes.
0: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So yeah, Polar Times would not be what it is today without help. So just want to say thank, oh, you, thank you for that all right thanks again tune in to another episode the time in the future thanks everyone please note that whilst this is an apex production the views and opinions expressed by the host and any guests are entirely their own they do not represent the views or opinions of apex or any other host institution mentioned